Please, uh, Cholwin can be dismissed at this time for Cholwin's Church. While you turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew <coughs> chapter 2. So grateful you're here today. It does my heart good, and I know it just honors the Lord that during this time of the year and during this uh, virus season as well that we're dealing with, that you remain faithful. It's a blessing. I mentioned it in Sunday school, but I just can't believe that we're in December already. Here we are in the month of December. It's hard to believe that the Christmas season is on us. I know that it is because Walmart put up their decorations about two months ago, and so I, was, I saw it coming. But we're in that time of the year where the red bells and the buckets uh, are ringing and sitting outside all the stores strange fat men in red suits want your children to sit on their laps. Never quite figured that one out. It's time for those inspiring Christmas songs like Joy to the World, Silent Night, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, and Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. All those inspiring songs. But I want to look today at one of the least used Christmas passages uh, you go to any program, you won't find it. You go to any children's play for Christmas, and you won't find this passage uh, mentioned or even brought up. And I want to look at it today, and I think we'll see why as we start to read this text. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start verse number 14. Now, Joseph here had gotten a dream to set it up. Joseph had gotten a dream to flee to Egypt. And so in verse 14, he arose, took the young child and his mother by night, and departed unto Egypt when he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, and it was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which we had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel, but when he heard that Achaelius did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside in the other, into parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. I want to preach today for a few minutes on the Christmas war. The Christmas war. Father, I pray that you would help us. From this text, gain some truths to be a help to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Christmas War, and I'm not talking about your family get-together. I know that's where your mind went as soon as I mentioned the Christmas War. Uh, every family uh, has those, right? Every family has that one weird relative that you see at Christmas. And if you're sitting right now thinking, I can't think of who that is, it's probably you, friend. We all have that one. I think it's obvious 
uh, as we read this text, I think it's probably pretty clear why we don't use this in our Christmas programs. It's not the most uplifting. Because we like Christmas to evoke certain feelings, uh, uh, good feelings in our hearts and in our, uh, in our lives as we think about it. Because it's a season of joy, it's happiness and family. And we want those good, positive feelings that come along with it. We like to stick to certain Christmas words like peace, gift, little child, birth, angels, light. It does, doesn't that sound better than the other Christmas words like slaughter, terror, brutality, murder, which is what we saw in our text today? Now, we'll, we'll take the first list in our Christmas, and that's what we focus on. But let us be honest and thorough today. And we'll find that there's a darker portion of the Christmas story. It has within it a villain. Uh, he is a God-hater. His name is Herod. Herod the Great, King of Judah. He was appointed by the Roman Emperor. He was in total control when Jesus was born. He is a narcissist. He is obsessed with power. And it led him to do what he did in our text today. It was Herod who who basically causes their flight to Egypt uh, to escape from his wrath. Jesus and his family are refugees. They're moving from Asia to Africa here. Then after Herod finds out that no one has told him, remember he had told the <coughs> wise men, you go find Jesus and, uh, or find the child, and when you find him, come and tell me so I can go worship him also. Well, the wise men were also warned of a dream by God, and and they did not go back to Herod. And now he finds out and he's very angry. And so uh, this invites more tragedy. He makes sure that every little boy under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area is slaughtered, killed. Imagine that. After Herod dies, Jesus' family comes back. And in verse 22 it says he had heard that uh, Herod's son was in charge and was ruling now. He was afraid because this was understandable. Archelaus was the son of Herod, was just as wicked as he was. He didn't reign for a long time, but he acted like his father did. So Joseph wisely said, we can't stay here. Herod's reign was one of terror, difficulty, cruelty, interesting. Uh, there is no historical record aside from the Bible about the slaughtering of the young children, the young boys. Uh, the, the, most, most of the things we find in the Bible are also in secular history, but this is not there in secular history. It leads some people to say, well, I don't believe that that really happened. First of all, if it's in the Bible, it happened. Amen? That's been proven over and over and over again. But let me give you a few facts about Herod. When he came into power, the first thing that he did was to massacre everyone in the former dynasty. He slaughtered other people just to make sure that they wouldn't make trouble for him. He once executed half of the Sanhedrins, which was that group of 70 religious leaders in Jerusalem area there, just because they gave him some trouble. One time in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 nobles to be killed. Also, came to the point he didn't trust his wife. And so, he did what you do. He had her executed, right? He just had her killed, just like that. Uh, then he had her mother killed as well. He goes beyond that. He had three of his sons executed because he didn't trust them. This was one demented guy. When he was dying, he gathered dozens of noblemen to the place where he was at 
and he instructed that at the moment of his death, that every, in celebration and mourning of his death, that everybody in the building should be killed. Now, mercifully, they didn't do it, but that was his request. Now, considering the size of Bethlehem, they're probably, it's very easy to believe that there was under 20, maybe under 10 little boys killed. And so because of all the wickedness of Herod and all the things that he did, this probably didn't make much of a blip on the radar screen of his atrocities. But knowing what we know about Herod, uh, it's absolutely in line with what we know about him historically that he would do something like this, where he would kill these boys trying to get a hold of Jesus. So why focus on this dark side of the Christmas story? Uh, one, you know, we, we look at some of these, and, and uh, even as in studies, like, why, why do I want to focus on this? Well, for one reason, it's in the Bible, right? And anything in the Bible, we can learn from it, and so I'll focus on it. Next week, it's going to be a little more pleasant, but this week, we're going to focus on the Christmas war. The first lesson we get from our text is Christianity is a fight. It does not only bring peace, it also brings strife. Herod shows us this principle in his text today that the coming of Christ not only solves many problems, it also creates many problems. It does not only bring marvelous peace, it also brings merciless strife. And there's, a, there's another passage, by the way, that presents this same struggle uh, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple, he's just a few days old, they bring him in there for his dedication, his circumcision. There's an old man in there called Simeon. And Simeon has been waiting on the Savior. And Simeon takes Jesus into his arms, and he says this, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And then <clears throat> an odd thing happens. He turns to Mary and he says this to the mother of this newborn child. Luke 2.34 is where this is found. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. <clears throat> yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now I have occasion once in a while to visit newborn babies in the hospital, or their parents really is who I'm visiting, but you know, uh, people have a child, and, and I get to go, and I've actually been there for eight of my own as well. And uh, what if, as I'm, whether me or somebody else is holding this newborn baby, and we look at the mother and we say this, this child is going to be despised. This child will create all kinds of problems, all kinds of trouble. Many people will hate and attack this child. Wars will happen over this child. And in the end, a sword's going to pierce your heart too, Mom. What would you think? Thanks for visiting. Set the flowers over there on the table and don't come back. But that's what Simeon does. He's telling Mary, what he's telling her is Jesus isn't only going to bring peace. He's going to bring a sword. In fact, in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said that about himself. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Here's the Christmas message today that we have from this. When Jesus comes, there's going to be some fighting. There's going to be some strife. There's going to be some conflict. True Christianity is a fight. 
Now, the child of God is defined by two realities. He may be known by his inward warfare as much as his inward peace. Now, you've been a Christian for any time. You know this. Uh, Jesus brings incredible inward peace, doesn't he? There's also the Christian life brings some inward warfare too, doesn't it? You can see it in the Christmas story. Jesus Christ comes and he brings peace, but he also brings war. Uh, This same thing happens uh, to us as Christians. Have you ever thought that your decision to live for Christ brings conflict? Have you ever felt that the lost people around you, now I'm just going to tell you, there's nobody here but us, so we can be honest with each other. Okay? When we ask these questions, you don't have to say, oh no, far too spiritual to have those thoughts. Just be honest. Have you ever looked at the lost around you and thought, they got a lot less trouble than I have? You know, the psalmist did that. He thought that exact thing. In Psalm 73.3, he says, For I was envious at the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. What he's really saying is, they don't see trouble like me. They're not plagued like I am. That's what he's looking at. Sometimes we look around. Why am I struggling? I'm trying to live for God here. Why am I facing all the problems that I'm facing? There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. If you want to keep your heart intact... You must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Lock it safe in the casket of your selfishness. In other words, if you want to keep your life from being disrupted, be selfish. Think only of yourself. Put your heart in a lockbox. Don't do anything for God. Don't get involved at church. Don't invest in anyone. In fact, Be careful that you don't even care about anybody else. In other words, don't love, don't hope, don't work, don't sacrifice. Stay selfish. You do that and you'll probably have a pretty tranquil life. See, what happens is a lost person gets saved or a person commits themselves to God and then they find that becoming a Christian is almost like coming out of a calm harbor into a storm. Sometimes. Because, yes, yes, we do get a new peace when we become a Christian, but we also get brand new strife and conflicts. Things that used to bother you terribly don't bother you anymore. Things that never bothered you before, now they bother you immensely. Life is different when we have God in it. In other words, there's there's both a new peace and a new war. That's the Christmas message for us today. Now, preacher, what do you mean? Well, let me just break it down and see if we can't pull out exactly what I'm talking about here. When you become a Christian, first you get a new peace. We'll talk about a couple of those. Uh, we get the new peace of a conscience. Accepting Christ into your life says to us what Romans 8, chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now when you look at your past, and you look at your sins, your conscience doesn't have to shriek anymore. 
uh, as, as one man wrote in a poem, Well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Because he has forgiven. He has taken those sins from us. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed them from us. He does not hold them against us anymore. There is no condemnation to the person that has accepted Christ as his Savior. So you have peace of conscience. You look at the things you've done. You look at the sins that you have committed. And as terrible as they are, they can't condemn you anymore. And that gives us peace. That gives us a good conscience that God loves me in spite of it all. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they should be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You see, friend, your sin, if you have come to Christ, your sin has been covered. Peace of conscience is a reward for forgiveness. Forgiveness from the Lord. Number two, when you become a Christian, you get a peace of identity. Uh, P-E-A-C, a peace in your identity. Uh, in other words, Jesus Christ is the end of your impossible struggle to live up to an impossible standard. None of us can earn heaven. None of us can be good enough to enter God's heaven on our own. None of us can do that. It's an impossible standard. Because we are sinners, we are tainted, for, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all tainted, we're unable to reach heaven on our own, and because of that, folks, many people try to live their life to that impossible standard, and it causes frustration, it causes a feeling of failure, but we have a new peace in our identity. Your standing with God is not due to your efforts. It can't be. In other words, if you're on your way to, he on, on your way to heaven today, friend, because of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what He's done. Salvation is spelled D-O-N-E, not D-O. It's done. Jesus said it on the cross. Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 really shows us it's not about you anymore. Now your identity is in Christ. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. There is a peace that only comes from the gospel, and that's our identity in Jesus Christ. Number three, when you become a Christian, there's also a lack of anxiety. When you look at the circumstances of life, you do so differently as a child of God than before you became a Christian. Before you became a Christian, this life is all we've had. Our circumstances, they're all we have. Now, as a Christian, we look at them differently. I know men today, friends of mine who watch the stock market, and their peace, their inner peace, is wrapped up in that stock market. If the stock market goes up, they're up. If it goes down, they're down. And a Christian can look at this differently. A Christian can say, nothing can wipe me out because my real wealth is safe and cannot be touched by anyone. My real health, my real wealth, my real identity, my inheritance is with Him. You see, the things that really matter in life, circumstances can't affect them. That's why we have to have our priorities right in our life. The government can't tax your treasures in heaven. Amen? That's a blessing. Let them try. They can't tax your treasures in heaven. Thieves cannot steal your treasures in heaven. 
Treasures in heaven don't depreciate when you drive them off the lot. Amen? Is that a good thing? An economic depression cannot affect what God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So there's a tremendous peace in our heart in Christ. Instead of guilt, there is, uh, there's freedom. Instead of anxiety, there's trust. So there's, there's a new peace God brings. But there's also new fights, new strife. If you become a Christian, you've joined yourself to a new family, the family of God. Galatians 6, 2, the Bible says, Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 32, And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, uh, for even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Here's one that's a little harder. It's a tough one. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Who's with me? Anybody can do that? Love your Love your neighbor or your friend. Who in here can do that? I can love my friends and hate my enemies. Jesus said, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now let's, again, just be honest. That's not easy. You ever tried to show kindness to someone who's cussed you out? You ever gotten, had somebody uh, mistreat you or, or uh, gossip about you or deeply hurt you? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to love them. You're supposed to do good unto them. That's a hard command that we have there. And so as a Christian, you make yourself vulnerable to people. You go out on a limb. You invest in people. You open your heart to people. And guess what? You're going to get hurt. You are. If you do that for God, if you follow these commandments, what's going to happen is there's going to be an assault on you. There's going to be some strife in your life. Before you became a Christian, oh, you still helped people. And often, though, people that aren't Christians help others really as much as to help themselves as they do to help others. I mean, they rescue someone to prove that they're a good person, and in that way, they almost use others to feel better about themselves. But as a Christian, it's different. As a Christian, you get vulnerable to people. You now get into relationships, not for your sake, but for their sake. You open up to them, and you're going to get hurt. You will. It's just a part of the Christian life. So why? What's the reason for the fight? Why does Christianity stir up fighting sometimes between people, uh, sometimes within you as the flesh and the spirit battle? This, this answer is the same as it was in this passage. If, uh, we read, if you examine the text here, what was it that really aroused all this violent reject, re- reaction to Jesus? It's interesting if we look close. Remember when the wise men came to Jerusalem when they say they're looking for Jesus? Remember that part of the story? Uh, they did not come to Herod and say, we are looking for a personal Savior. They did not come to Herod and say, we're looking for a spiritual leader. They didn't come to Herod and say, hey, we're looking for somebody that if you bring him your problems, he will help you with your problems. If you bring him your pain, he will help you with your pain. If you bring him your guilt, he will send you away guiltless. They didn't say any of that. If they would have, wouldn't have caused that big of a deal 
with Herod, but that's not what they said. In Matthew 2, 2, they said this, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, that's what stirred Herod up. When, uh, ver- ch- chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. I guess he was troubled. Seeking a king in a land that already has a king, there's going to be a war there, amen? There's going to be trouble there. And then it goes on to say, and all Jerusalem also was troubled with him. In light of the fact that Herod is a murderous, genocidal tyrant, I guess they would be upset as well. When Herod's upset, they're worried as well. The real problem was that the wise men were looking for a king. That's the reason why there was all this outrage. And let me tell you today, friend, when Christ comes into your life, that's why there's a fight between people sometimes and within people. His desire to be king. The fact that he is the king. Now, Jesus said some wonderful things in his ministry, and we like to use these verses to encourage one another. Nothing wrong with that. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, coming to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He also says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And those are wonderful verses. But that's not all that Jesus said. He said also things like Matthew sixteen twenty four: If any man will come unto me, let him deny himself first and take up his cross and follow me. He said in Luke fourteen twenty six: If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some strong language, isn't it? He said in Matthew 16, 25, For whosoever shall save his life uh, shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. Luke six forty six. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He did not just come to them and say, I'm your Savior. He says, I'm your Lord and I'm your King. And that's what makes the problems. Do you know, nobody has a problem with the baby in the manger. We we can accept the baby in a manger. But we don't want the king. We want the baby, but we don't want the king as human beings. But the wise men did not come seeking a baby. They came seeking a king. And that's who he was. If you will make him king in your life, you're going to have a fight on your hands. You will. That's, there's your Christmas war. Make him king. John Stott, I love this statement. He said, no one ever met Jesus Christ. No one who ever met Jesus Christ responded moderately to him. The only three things you'll see people doing when they meet the real Jesus, they run away in terror, they assault him with fury, or they prostrate themselves in surrender. Terror, wrath, or complete surrender. But you cannot be passive. Why? Because of his claim to be king. You cannot be passive. You can't be, and I've heard this from people, and you know, a little religion's nice. Don't get too serious about it. Don't become a fanatic. You have no idea who Jesus Christ is with that kind of attitude. He's not something you dabble in. He's your king or he's your nothing. He said, I am king. I am Lord. Why call you yourselves followers of my disciples? Why why do you even call yourselves Christians and you don't do the things I say? That's what his question was. We can't be passive. If we understand, if we truly understand 
Jesus Christ claims to kingship, and we understand who he is and his position, we will either run in terror, we will assault him in anger, or we will fall down in complete surrender. And friend, I'll tell you this, even if you surrender, this will create fighting inside. Because as we surrender to Jesus Christ, and he starts renewing our hearts and changing our lives, our flesh will fight against his claims to kingship with everything it's got. Paul even talked about that, Romans chapter 7. His flesh daily, that that daily fight that goes on. The Christmas war is all because he is born king. We just sang it a few minutes ago, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive who? Her king. Her king. We learn that Jesus Christ brings fight as well as peace. We learn that Jesus Christ brings, uh, brings a fight because of his claims of kingship. And then number three, if you're associated with him, you'll be persecuted as well. We see in our text this violent reaction against Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something here. The members of Jesus' family were also refugees, not just Jesus. The citizens of Jesus' city here are also slaughtered, not just Jesus. You see, the hatred that the world has for Jesus is spread also to those that associate with him. I don't know if you've noticed, but it becomes increasingly unpopular in our society today to call yourself a Christian, to call yourself a believer. I mean, if you want to invite a lot of scorn, just go ahead and make a statement about the earth being a young earth or that the earth being created by a creator, not just something that happened or came out of the mire or the muck of some cosmic accident. It takes a lot more faith to believe in that than it does to believe in God said and it happened. Because the Christianity, a Christ, being a Christian is not the popular thing today. When you see the whole family running for their lives to Egypt, remember what the Bible says about us. We're his family as well. Uh, the Bible says, in, or Jesus actually said it, in verse, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 35, they came to Jesus and said, Hey, your mother, your brothers are looking for you. Listen to what Jesus said. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother, my sister, my mother. You're living for God in your life. You're in his family. And because he is under attack, you'll be under attack as part of his family. There's something else. The Bible says when you become a Christian... You don't only become a member of his family, also you become a citizen of his city. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that we are citizens of his city. So in this text, we see his family running for their life. We see the little children, little boys who are citizens of Jesus' city, suffering the hostility of the world against Jesus. In this, we have a picture of our situation today. You identify yourself with Christ, you're going to have a war on your hands. You'll, war, you'll have an interior battle where, where we constantly battle against the flesh. The flesh wants what it wants. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Who's in charge? Uh, we need to be in charge of our flesh. The flesh certainly doesn't need to be in charge. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's interesting in the Christmas story, And we'll look at this throughout the time as we draw closer, but in the Christmas story, you see all kinds of people attracted to Jesus. You see the shepherds, you see the wise men, and then you see some here that are utterly repulsed by Jesus. 
2,000 some years have passed and not much has changed. There are still people that are repulsed by him. They, can do, they do everything they can to reject him. But then we also see Jesus who's still saving people and he's still changing lives and he's still making a difference to those that love him. And I'm asking you today, if you're in his family, if you're in his city, if you're a child of God, be identified with him. Don't be, have him as your identity and don't be afraid to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. It'll cause a war. That's okay. Number four, God uses the despised and the unimportant to get his message across. When Joseph and Mary came back to Israel, notice they didn't want to go to Nazareth. They're from Nazareth, but they want to settle in Judea, and out of fear, they're forced back into Nazareth. Nazareth was outside of Judea proper. It was a place filled with Gentiles and barbarians, and Joseph and Mary didn't want to live there. Evidently, it was some kind of a podunk place. It was what we refer to when we say it's the wrong side of the tracks. That's what kind of place Nazareth was. In fact, you remember when they came to Nathaniel and they said to Nathaniel, hey, Nathaniel, we have found him. We found the Messiah. And we have, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel says? This is found in, in John chapter 1. He said, Nazareth? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's the idea that we have. It'd be like, we found the Messiah. He's from Gary, Indiana. That's the kind of idea we'd have today, you know. The world loves credentials. The world loves people to talk, act, and look a certain way. They like when they go to certain schools. I mean, if you want respect today, it has to come from Madison Square Garden. It does not come from Possum Grape, Arkansas. And by the way, that's a real place. Possum Great, Arkansas. But the world respects the esteemed. They respect the big names. They respect position. Can I ask you today, how did God bring salvation into the world? Through a man born to a poor family. Through a man who was born in a stable. Through a man who was raised in Nazareth. Can there any good come out of Nazareth? I can tell you one good thing that came out of Nazareth. Amen? And this is the Christmas story. That Jesus Christ comes into your world, into your life, and He won't come the way that you think or that you expect. He'll humble you. He will come and He will not only bring peace, and that He does. He brings great peace. He will also bring war. He will not only be your Savior... He also wants to be your king. There's the peace and the war right there. Yeah, but praise God, His suffering is a redemptive suffering. His fight heals the Christmas war. We need to just keep right on fighting it. Don't let the flesh win in your daily battles against it. Don't let a godless society continue to silence us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we will serve God, we're in that Christmas war. Don't quit. Keep at it. It will be worth it in the end. Amen. What a blessing to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a baby born in this season we celebrate, but he grew up. He died for us. He became our substitute for salvation. And now he wants to rule and reign as your king. Don't only accept Jesus Christ as a cute baby. 
Accept Him in your life as King, as Lord in your life. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today...